Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week. Please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming shows. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. And thanks to my podcasting partner and co-host Patrick from Pullstring Press for this great studio. Hey, Patrick, good morning. How are you this morning? I'm awesome. We're doing great. Good I, work today. I love it. Yeah, we. Um, so our, our listener knows that we record several shows in a row, so it's kind of fun. We get in a nice flow, So, and then we post them out uh, for people to listen to. And I, we have a, a guest who's joining us via Skype today, uh, and you won't even notice the difference in the audio because it sounds so great. <laughs> I love it. I would love you to, uh, to meet Sabith Khan. Uh, it, it, is it Dr. Khan? Yeah, I mean, uh, but I go by my first name, so Sabbath is good. Sabbath, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got that, and you are the assistant professor, uh, an assistant professor in the public policy and administration group. Is that the right word? Uh, inside the School of Management at California right. Lutheran yes, University. Absolutely, I'm one of the core faculty members in the MPPA program. How long have you been there? Uh, well, I started last fall, so rounding up my first year. So you're still in the honeymoon period. Yep, I believe so. And where were you before that? Uh, so I was a visiting researcher at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. So I moved from D.C. Uh, via Virginia. So I went to grad school, got my Ph.D. from Virginia Tech, and uh, spent two years at Georgetown as a visiting researcher and then made my way up to California. And how did um, Gerhardt recruit you? Because he is, he is legendary on uh, getting people, and it's been pr- pretty amazing in how he does that. So I want to hear that story. I think it was his uh, Austrian sense of timing. He, <laughs> he caught me at the right time. So uh, I was in the job market for about a year. Uh, my wife worked at Brookings, the think tank in D.C., and uh, we were, she's from the area, from Southern California, and so we wanted to move to a warmer climate. And uh, I was applying to jobs in California and Boston. Uh, I almost made it to Boston, but then uh, the weather just pulled me towards California. And of course, it helped that uh, Gerhard, as you said, uh, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> he is quite good. Gerhard, thank you so much. We, we appreciate your support and uh, your introduction to the folks there, the professors. We've had some spectacular conversations. Your um, expertise is in philanthropy, civil society, religion, and culture. So there's there's a lot to unpack yep. in that. Um, so tell me when you're at a cocktail party and someone says, so Sabbath, what do you do? Uh, well, the easiest thing to tell is I tell them I teach, so which is the truth, uh, because I do end up teaching quite a bit at Cal Lutheran. And uh, I research on the side, and I write books, and I travel. So these are the things that I tell people, and uh, usually in that order, because uh, a lot of my work in the past has been on intersections of philanthropy, civil society, and religion. And my first book, which came out in November, uh, basically examines this using uh, certain schools uh, as uh, as a focus. So yeah, yeah, I think that pretty much is a good summary of what I do. What, what do you love the most about teaching? 
Uh, well, let's let's look at it this way. I think teaching gives me a good uh, opportunity to experiment with a few ideas that I'm working with currently. So it helps me bring my research uh, to an audience which are very which is very captive, for the most part. And so I get to experiment with uh, some of the research ideas. I get to challenge my own ideas at times. And also, uh, you know, sometimes students have great ideas, you know, things that I haven't thought about. So it's also, it's like a laboratory of ideas in, in many ways. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, uh, we've, you know, we, I was talking to a professor this morning who has, a, looks at the students as the laboratory for her work yep. that she's doing. And uh, I love that. How now? How many students do you typically have in a class? It depends. You know, the smallest class this term is six, or rather seven, and the largest I have is fourteen students. So we okay. Cap it at, so yeah, how? Range. I'm thinking of other classrooms where there's seven hundred people in a lecture hall. <laughs> so oh, yeah. someone getting to spend that time with you, six people. That's that's pretty high bandwidth teaching, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, just last night, uh, I taught my course on nonprofits, uh, philanthropy, and pluralism, uh, where we examined, you know, the tensions in high net worth philanthropy, what is called high net worth giving by, you know, mega mega millionaires or billionaires, for that matter. And we looked at issues of uh, campaign financing and things like that. So we got into a very very interesting discussion, and not surprisingly, there were three groups among six people, <laughs> three groups of uh, ideas, you know, hmm. obviously they were all quite divergent and it was good to good to see that diversity of thought even within such a small classroom. What's and the average people, age of the student? Uh, I want to say in the upper 20s or early 30s. It's, these are pretty mature, mature people and most of them are working, if not all. Uh, they're working professionals either for the state government or few in the federal agencies and uh, many in the nonprofit sector. How does religion fit into this? Uh, well, I have an interesting statistic for both of you, uh, which is that about a third of giving, or third of philanthropy in the US uh, is uh, you know, towards religious institutions. So just to put things in context, uh, the total philanthropy or estimated philanthropy in the US last year was in the order of about $330 billion with a B. Wow, uh, and about a hundred billion dollars uh, went towards churches, synagogues, mosques, temples, what have you. So uh, the base, the fundamental basis of philanthropy in the U.S. is, uh, you know, religion. Uh, you know, whether we like it or not, that's how Americans give, and it has been. Uh, it was actually higher in the past, in the 40s and 50s, which is probably 50 percent. Hmm. Now it's come down to one third. It's because of changing demographics, changing modes of religiosity and decreasing church attendance. But yeah, there's a very strong basis to uh, philanthropy rooted in religious traditions. And I would think that, uh, as you were talking about last night with politics, that there's a, quite a conversation to be had there with the one, some might say, undue influence of all that money. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What's so, your position on that? Um, I'd say yes. I think there is uh, undue and you know uh, even unfair amount of interference by rich people in in the political process. And one of the decisions we examined was Citizens United, and how that has impacted how Americans think about politics and the scope of uh, you know even the political machine. It's it's 
you know, it reminds me of a conversation I had a friend with a friend in India. I'm from India originally. I grew up there. And uh, he said, you know, uh, American elections are more fun than Bollywood. Like, <laughs> follows them religiously. I mean, he's back in India, but he spent about 10, 12 years here as an IT guy. And every election, he follows American elections more closely than I do because it's fun. It's like it's a big show, right? You're excited about the result and you're looking at all this stuff going on, making people making acquisitions, people, you know, doing all sorts of crazy things. And at the end, you have a winner and a loser. So it's, uh, I mean, coming again from a very large democracy and arguably the world's largest democracy, you know, which is India, uh, for me, it's interesting to see how uh, things are moving in parallel, like both the Indian democratic process and the American, uh, both not necessarily in a positive direction when it comes to money and politics. You see similar patterns occurring in India as well, with huge corporations coming in and bulldozing the entire process with the kind of money that they have. The um, another area where you have expertise is, is something called civil society, and why don't you help our listener understand what that means? Because I understand what both of those words individually mean, but they're sure. they they have meaning out in the world. No, absolutely. If you look up, uh, you know, during my dissertation preparation, I did a literature review and I came up with about 30 definitions of civil society. So I think I'll spare you all the 30 and just <laughs> very simple terms, use the simplest one, uh, which is civil society is society. You know, people, you and me together having this conversation or a group of people would form a society, right? So that's we are a component of civil society in that sense. Any group of individuals who are free to associate and do what they want could be considered civil society, which is, you know, generally outside the structure of the state. But there are intersections with the state apparatus as well. And and, and that feels organized, though, in some sense, right? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, structured by anybody, but it could be even an informal group of people, you know, just like I said, three of us hang, you know, or four, four people hanging out having a cup of coffee and discussing the weather could be civil society in operation. So you're, um, tell me what your, the book that came out in November was, the title of that? Sure. Uh, so the, the book was Islamic uh, Institutions, Islamic Schools in the U.S. and Evolution of American Muslim Philanthropy. So essentially it examined <clears throat> uh, Islamic schools, which is K through 12 full-time schools in the U.S. Uh, and looked at them as institutions uh, which have evolved in a very American context, using the institution of nonprofits uh, as I mean, the, most of them are nonprofits. So there's a careful examination of uh, American Islamic schools, and there has not been such a study done. I mean, there have been surveys done on Islamic schools in the past, uh, but not a thorough uh, book which has examined these schools as as institutions in their own right. Now, is that your first book? Yes, that is my first book. Do you like to write? I enjoy writing, yes. So I was an aspiring journalist at a certain point. Oh, really? Yep, so I'm a failed journalist. So failed <laughs> journalists become academics. <laughs> I'd like to believe so. And so um, tell me about the journey from India here to study. What was that like for you? It was a very uh, interesting experience and a pretty, I mean, filled with coincidences. I never planned it that way. Uh, I, I just wanted to see the world. You know, when I was 24 is when I decided that, you know, I've had enough of India, at least for 
my 24 year old self and I wanted to see travel and work around the world and uh, a complete happenstance which put me in Dubai. So one of my colleagues ah. forwarded me a job. I was at Ogilvy Public Relations, a large. Oh, God. of course. Center. Yeah. So I worked with Ogilvy in their public relations division in Bangalore, where I'm from. And uh, I had this colleague who got this random email from a person in Dubai who was recruiting for an account manager position at a boutique PR firm in Dubai. And she had just gotten married and she said, look, I'm not interested. Does this sound like something you want to do? Because she knew my ambitions. And I said, hell, why not? You know, let's, let's just see what happens. And I applied. And uh, again, a big coincidence, the guy who was hiring, the, the founder of the company, uh, was going to be in Bangalore the very next week. So he said, Perfect. let's have a coffee and talk. I said, let's do it. So we met and he liked my work. And I think the fact that I'd worked on some very interesting accounts at Ogilvy sort of helped build my case. And he literally made me the offer uh, pretty much the next day. He said, I want you to work for me. What are your terms? Let's hash this out. So, you know, and I signed on the dotted line, said, <laughs> let's do it. And I moved to Dubai, uh, where I worked for about two years. I worked on some very interesting accounts, including Dubai International Film Festival. I worked on uh, Mohammed bin Rashid Foundation, which is one of the largest foundations in the region and uh, Dubai School of Government, which is another large uh, public, uh, public policy school in Dubai. And uh, while I was working on these accounts, I realized that I like this stuff. I like what I'm reading, I like what I'm writing, stuff about governance and public policy and making sure that people have health care. So those sorts of big picture issues. And that's what got spite, interested me uh, in, in public policy and public administration. And uh, in, in one of my very good friends, who's actually still in the US, uh, he suggested uh, that I look at Syracuse University, which has a very highly ranked uh, public administration program. And again, once, you know, on a whim, I said, let's, let's give this a shot, you know, what have I got to lose? And even though I was enjoying my life, uh, you know, as a single person making a lot of tax-free money, it's a good, <laughs> it is a good, good position to be in, especially in Dubai. Uh, but I was, getting a bit jaded with the whole recession because remember this was 2008 and 9 uh, the time that i was there and uh, the recession really hit dubai pretty hard probably as bad as uh, new york or other mm -hmm, big uh, mm -hmm. and uh, even though i had my job about half of my colleagues were laid off so it was it was pretty uh, brutal like you could feel the city empty out it was pretty harsh uh, the the economic reality and the associated sort of social bonds that were impacted. So I really questioned uh, what I was doing in Dubai at that point, why I was there, you know, was money everything? Was my life just going to be about making money and, you know, working on these things? Or was there a slightly bigger purpose in that sense? And that's what uh, motivated me to study. I said, it's, it's a good time to do this because thankfully I didn't have any major financial obligations towards anyone. You know, no fam. I mean, my family was pretty okay on their own, as in my parents and others. And uh, I was pretty much a free bird. I said, okay, let's use this freedom to get some education while I can. Uh, so I applied to the MPA program at Syracuse at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, and uh, I got accepted uh, with uh, a decent scholarship. And uh, my criterion was to get into the best school that I could. So I chose Columbia, I chose Harvard, I chose Maxwell. 
So these were respectively ranked one, two, three. In the sure, sure. Was public administration program. And my logic was, if I don't get into the top three, then I don't need to leave because what's what's the point, right? Because I'm my life is already good here, right? Like I'd be giving up a lot to pursue something, and I don't want to end up in a godforsaken university in a godforsaken part of the U.S. So that wasn't uh, what I wanted. And uh, luckily for me, again, uh, Columbia and Harvard turned me down. They said, thanks, but no thanks. And Maxwell said, hey, we want you. And they threw me some money. And I said, OK, decision made. Uh, this is you know, quite an easy one. And uh, so I resigned my job. But uh, the journey to US itself was a little tricky. And that's, uh, that's a very interesting story that I, I could share, if you want, or a little later. But yeah, that's basically the long and short of it. And so, th so that gets you over here. You go spend time at Georgetown, and no, you you taught. Did you teach at Georgetown? No, no, that was later. So I went to Syracuse and spent uh, a year in D.C. after my graduation, working for a small nonprofit, and then I went to George. Uh, sorry, Virginia Tech for my PhD. So I got got it. Got it. Yep. Just on, on a tour to hit all of the major uh, learning institutions in the country. That's yes. nice. <laughs> yeah. On the east, I finished the East Coast, so I'm on the West Coast now. <laughs> uh, when did you tell, – tell me how you got interested in philanthropy because we, we have a lot of nonprofits on the show. We have a lot of nonprofit leaders on the show, and I mean, they are, in fact, a business. Uh, it's just a, it's a tax designation that says they're you know, 501c3 corporations or nonprofit corporations. But – Tell me what's you're on the on the the giving side of that and understanding that what what attracted you to that field? Uh, well, I think uh, I would I would disagree with you slightly there. I, I, while nonprofits do function as uh, businesses, uh, they are I mean by mission and vision a lot of them are intended to serve people, right? Uh, because if you look at higher institutions, higher education institutions, or if you look at hospitals. Uh, they're, at least in principle, not structured to make maximized profit. So I think that's really, for me, the differentiating factor and the reason why I would work for a nonprofit uh, in the first place. And uh, I, I think that distinction is very important because the structure allows you, as you said, to get a tax exemption for providing a service which either the government has failed to provide or is not able to provide, right? So this is some sort of market failure. Uh, so that's that's really uh, the interesting thing for me about nonprofits. Even though I agree, uh, pretty much nonprofits function, uh, you know, as for-profit institutions. But I think the guiding spirit and what they offer, I think, is very important even today, uh, despite all the flaws. I think the industry or the sector is pretty important to American society. Yeah, I would a thousand percent agree with you on that. And then how did you get in, interested in the philanthropy part of it? So that's the financial, the funding part of that. So it's like someone studying venture funding, right, for profit coming to get in a, a degree in that. So what was it about that that attracted you? Because do you have finance in the background or is it the? No, I don't. I, don't. I think that's a good question. And uh, my interest really began in Dubai when I was managing this mm. large fund. Uh, you know, seeing how billions of dollars literally could be spent towards, you know, uh, services or sectors that need development. And that was coming from individuals, right? So this foundation was set up by the ruler of Dubai, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin uh, Rashid al-Maktoum. Uh, 
So that is the genesis. But I think when I came to the U.S., uh, I worked for a year um, between my master's and my PhD at a very small nonprofit in Washington, D.C. as their executive director. So I literally ran a small nonprofit. And the daily struggles of raising money and yep. uh, the challenges of really seeing how people respond to you when you ask for money was something that really stuck with me. And I remember this uh, advice I received from a very senior gentleman. He said, when you ask for money, people give you advice. But if you want money, you should ask for their advice. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it hmm. seemed to work because you, you can never ask for money directly, right? especially in fundraising and uh, these issues, you always have to build a purpose or uh, a narrative around why you're asking for money. And so that insight really helped me, I would say, in, in getting into philanthropy and understanding the sector uh, more broadly, and particularly uh, the applied part of it, as you said, the philanthropic aspects. Stay, stay and I want to unpack that a little bit more because I know that... Um there's a lot of nonprofits here in the region. We've got a, a, such a huge concentration of them uh, in the region. And a lot of people, whether they are, they might be running a business, but they also sit on the board of a nonprofit. So they have, right, there's a, there's a lot of that going on. So it's when you ask for money, people will give you advice. And I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, uh, as a business owner, getting asked for money, and I, you know, there's only so many checks you can write. Um, right. So it's like you're willing, what do they say, uh, wealth, wit, and wisdom? Uh, those are the three things I can get. So if I'm not going to give you the money, then I'm going to give you, you know, the, the wisdom, right, and, and the wit to, to your point. But that if you go in and ask for advice, they'll give you money. And that's because you're really getting some, some information that will help. And then they'll, it'll dawn on them that you also need some money. And then, guess, then it comes on. Was that your experience? Uh, in some cases. Yeah, in some cases, they would just stop with advice. But in, I think in some cases, uh, if I made the case indirectly, uh, yeah, I did get money, at least for the nonprofit that I work for. Uh, I didn't raise a ton of money, but yeah, all that I raised was through people, you know, who believed in the organization and who I sought out, you know, and said, look, we, we want to grow this organization and uh, we have this challenge. What do you think? So I, I approach them more with the what do you think question and to incorporate their uh, suggestions with all seriousness. You know, I was I was sincere in approaching them honestly and said, we have a problem and you've been a donor in the past or you're an alum of the program and uh, how do you think we can fix this? So and then we started you know, getting into more the weeds of the organization and our financial situation and things like that. And that's when the checks started coming out. I love that. That's a that's a great tip in there. Now you're working on a book now, um, and thank you for sending the proposal. Is that book written or you're it's you're done? No, no, we, we just signed the contract last month. Oh, great! Congratulations. Thank you with Rootledge Press, and uh, yeah. And so, what this book is about remittances and uh, international aid. So for, for the listener who doesn't know what that means, um, give, give us that in lay terms. Sure, remittances are any money sent by you know, a person who's, who's not born in a country, for instance, an expatriate, uh, sending money to their country of origin, are remittances, right? For instance, a Mexican living in the US 
sending money back to Mexico to, to his or her relatives, right, for whatever reasons, uh, would be remittances in, in very simple terms. So is is it, um, I was talking to a friend about this actually this morning, knowing we were going to talk, and she was telling me that India largely funded on remittances uh, from the UK. Uh, no, actually from the US. US from the and, US. And the Gulf countries. In fact, a lot of uh, uh, states, uh, you know, a lot of people, in fact, millions of people have their relatives who work in the Persian Gulf, right? The G, what are called the GCC countries, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Kuwait, you know, uh, these countries. So they, uh, many of them who go there to work are single men, right? So they often don't take their families with them. Right. And it's a, it's a pure labor, labor arbitrage, right? Because if they can make, say, $2,000 in India, they can make $10,000 per month, for instance, right? So it's, it makes much more sense for them to spend a few years working in these countries and which are often tax-free, by the way. You don't pay income tax in any of the GCC countries. So you pretty much keep everything you earn. So that's a huge incentive, right? Uh, so that's that's one of the dynamics that's been in place for, for a very long time. So what was the research part of this that intrigued you? About the book specifically? Yes. Yeah, here's, a, again, an interesting statistic for you guys. Uh, remittances, the amount of global remittances sent... Uh, from people around the world to their countries of origin uh, is three times the amount of uh, international development aid given by Western countries to developing countries. So I think that is a very compelling uh, statistic if you just think about it for a second because in general understanding international aid that goes from Western countries to the developing world right. is considered very huge. But if you just put things in context, it, it's it's one third of what people send to each other, right? So this, uh, I think, is a very compelling reason why we are studying this, because it's a very understudied phenomenon of how people help each other, help their families, and help their uh, communities even, right? Because lots of uh, people uh, who make it in, in Western countries or other countries uh, actually set up schools, for instance, or they set up clinics or set up other institutions which may not exist in, in uh, the little village that they come from. Right. So in, in that sense, it's, uh, it's a huge, huge uh, chunk of change that's flowing from uh, people to people. And I think it's, it's definitely worth studying. And there are aspects to this issue, in fact, I was just talking with a colleague yesterday, that are uh, misunderstood. There are aspects to this that are misrepresented, unfortunately. So I think our aim is also to hopefully correct some of those misconceptions. What would be the number one misconception? I would say uh, the biggest, I think, given the current political climate in the U.S., if you look at America and Mexico, is that money's flowing out of the U.S. and it's such a bad thing, right? It's that money should stay in the U.S. Uh, so I think that's uh, one of the bigger misconceptions. The second one, I would say, especially in a conflict situation, let's take Let's pick a country. Uh, let's pick, say, uh, Somalia, right? So there are Somalis in Netherlands who send money to Somalia, for instance, or from the U.S. sending money to Somalia. So often there are problems associated with sending remittances, both from a policy perspective and also from a practical perspective, uh, in the sense that in many cases bank will refuse, banks will refuse to send money to conflict zones, right? So really? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I have a colleague uh, uh, 
at uh, Virginia Tech, and she happens to be from Yemen. She has, as as you may be aware, there's a active conflict yep, going on. Sure, in there Yemen. is. Yeah. Yeah, and she is. Uh, she has a job. She's doing pretty okay for herself, uh, but she has trouble sending money to her folks in Sana, which is the capital, right? And uh, I, I don't know the financial situation, but I'm assuming uh, it's not the best in that sense. And uh, it would help, you know, if she can send money to her folks and they can use it to buy basic necessities of life. And a lot of this has to do with policy, like how banks make policies towards remittances or even how, say, Department of Treasury or other agencies determine how and how easily money should be sent to certain parts of the world. So help me understand, Professor. Yes, um, you study public policy and then you teach people who are going to go out and affect public policy. Is that correct? Yes. And so is it your hope that the by having this discussion, by writing books, by, you know, presenting these things that you can actually affect public policy writ large? Uh, I think that would be a very ambitious thing to say. Uh, my, my goal really is to, as a teacher, I think my first role is to make students aware of the entire spectrum of ideas, I think at a more fundamental and basic level, to let them know that, you know, while a certain policy may be in place, uh, it's in place for certain reason and for certain political expediencies. And it, it's, it need not be this, for instance, right? Uh, if you look at social welfare policies, even domestically, uh, my idea is to really help students think of all the possibilities, think of all options available, and help them pick what they think is the best, and also teach them how to analyze these and how to make sense of uh, the, the kind of range of options available to them. And of course, if that has an impact on policy, for sure. I think scholarship, yes, does have the agenda, uh, the, at least the kind of training I've received, is to solve problems, to solve real problems in the real world, and make sure that your policy gets out there, uh, sorry, or your scholarship gets out there, and tangibly it has some impact on people who are making policies. So our, our listener knows that I'm a, a long-time TED-ster, uh, produced TEDx Santa Barbara. Uh, California Lutheran is going to have a TEDx later in the fall, uh, which I'm excited about. Um, uh, Mike Panessis is kind of shepherding that with uh, the people over at the Hub 101. And so I'm of a belief uh, around ideas worth spreading, ideas worth sharing. And it always starts with a single person. Uh, sure. So that you know, th that's why um, I, I look for the impact of the idea, right? If you're, you know, studying this thing, what's the impact of that, and how does that get out to a larger audience? Or are there? It, I'm just I'm thinking of you know, here in Santa Barbara, we have um, we have a lot of uh, Hispanic workers who are sending money back home. So I mean, I, I can relate to that sure. a lot. I hadn't thought about your point of people going to work in the, you said the GCC? Yeah, the Gulf Cooperation Council. Right, going to work there and sending money back here, right? And To, in, to India. Right. To, Indian migrants, yeah. Yes. And um, help me understand how that, I guess that helps the small village because now those people have that extra income, right? Sure. And then, then so I'm curious. Um, 
Because we all get challenged to figure out where our own personal philanthropy is. Those, the families that are getting money, and they're probably now making more money than they would, as you said, maybe 10x. Is there a philanthropic opportunity for them in their villages? Do you see that? Do you study that at all? Uh, I haven't looked at it personally, as in my own research so far hasn't looked at that. Hopefully through this book, which we just started, you know, looking into, we we hope to examine these uh, these aspects. Uh, but if I've understood your question correctly, uh, there is uh, definitely a potential for those who receive this extra money, right? Money that goes beyond their means uh, to uh, you know be- not only better their own lives, but even help others, you know. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. Right. To help others through, uh, you know, the money that they receive. And uh, at least in scholarship, there is evidence that uh, people, uh, you know, who are better off than they were before, they tend to, there is a trickle down effect, if you will, if I may use that term, uh, in philanthropy as well in this context. So, uh, or even if you look at the long term impact of remittances. And to be honest, there haven't been too many studies on the long-term impact of remittances on families or others. Uh, but I must point, uh, draw your attention to this very interesting field of research that's going on uh, in the U.S. Uh, based on what is called giving directly, slightly related but distinct area of work. So there's a company or a nonprofit called Giving Directly, uh, which believes that you should just give money uh, philanthropically to parts of the world, uh, no questions asked. Right. So it's a fascinating study that's going on where, you know, they pick a random village in Africa, for instance, and uh, they get what is similar to a universal basic income. Right. Say like hundred dollars a month, which covers all their expenses and living, you know, stuff. No questions asked. You know, you don't have to do anything. So it's just an experiment to see what happens. And at least the initial results are very promising. You know, these these have a huge impact on people's development, like in terms of their sure. physical uh, their emotional development, they're uh, able to send their kids to school. So there are obviously very tangible benefits to doing such, such even as a policy. But and and more than just um, or what previously has been done, which is to like say set up um, uh, people going into the community and dispersing, uh, you know, metered uh, ex- expected funds towards like, you know, like, which, which is to say like, oh, we, we sent a couple experts on farming in there to help teach people how to farm. Um, and those that you're saying that that uh, the study is showing that, that money just arriving without any of those strings or without any kind of like advocate who tells you how to spend it yep. is more successful. Yeah, this is a new, or not really new, because it's in some ways old, right? This is what my mother used to do. <laughs> she literally gave money directly to, you know, my cousins and many other people who were poor. No, no questions asked, right? Of course, she knew they were poor, so she gave money without like checking to see where she spent. My my cousin spent it or things like that. And you know, I have personal anecdotal evidence. You know, I've seen my mom pass away a few years ago. But unfortunately, you know, so but I have about 25 years of my own personal experience of seeing so many of these families thriving today. Right. And partly thanks to the money that they received, they were able to send their kids to schools. Many of them graduated from university. Right. So uh, there is, I think, uh, common sense tells you that, you know, helping others uh, does good to them, not only to yourself. Right. Because you feel good. There's that glow factor. But even to others, I mean, I think. 
the whole international aid model, I think, that is in place, while it has its flaws, it's good. I, I still believe the international aid model should exist. Americans should, you know, help others because it's the richest country in the world, right? End of the day. And we have excess wealth in this country, for sure. And people give only when they have more than what they need, right? At a very basic level. You can't force people, or even governments, I, I would like to believe, have a responsibility being being uh, the global leader that the U.S. is, uh, even though the last uh, couple of months have sort of uh, dented that in terms of withdrawing from various sort of global obligations. But I think the U.S. Uh, should uh, do more foreign aid. At the same time, facilitate these exchanges, because they not only build uh, faith in, you know, uh, each, you know, as countries, you know, faith between the countries, but also help sort of build these bonds, which impact the U.S. very positively. Where do, um, you know, I'm, th I'm thinking of people who have uh, put together platforms to be able to manage this. Where do microloans fit into all of this? Sure, microcredit, yeah, I think that's a good question. Microcredit is, again, a part of the whole apparatus that we're talking about, right? So they emerged um, initially in Bangladesh with Muhammad Yunus, who's credited as, as being the founder of this idea, and it has spread around the world. Uh, so so for someone who might not know what those are, why don't you quickly explain what that is? Sure. Absolutely. So in very simple terms, these are very small loans given by somebody to, say, uh, a woman, for instance, she wants to start, uh, uh, you know, like a small shop, like a mom and pop store uh, in her little village. So you give her like a $300 loan because that's what all she needs, really. But in many poor countries, even access to $300 is not easy, right, as we probably know. And uh, even if they have access to $300, usually it's at a very high rate of interest. So by the time they start paying back, uh, you're looking at paying back $800 or $900 for the initial $300 borrowed. So the whole idea of microcredit was to facilitate these small loans to help people, in many cases actually women in Bangladesh, to start small businesses so they could become you know, independent. And uh, the idea was to really help them grow as entrepreneurs and also with advice. So the idea also was to form what are called self-help groups. So uh, like actually Mohammed Yunus was an economics professor. So he started several self-help groups that he organized himself. And he would give money and every once, two weeks or a month, they would meet to discuss you know, what they're doing with their money and if others had advice for them on how to better manage their small business or even he himself would have advice. So this is really the genesis of that idea, and it has become it has become an industry in its own right today. And which is uh, why I'm asking about it absolutely. because platforms have been developed to facilitate that. So if you there there's you know, many of those. So if you said, "Gee, I would love to give a hundred dollars a month, and it's going to go to a." A small farmer in Nairobi, and right. I, you know, with that money, they're going to, you know, be able to buy goats and do milk, and then do whatever sure. it is they have this idea for, and you can measure it and see what's going on. And there's, you know, there's a closed loop to that giving, uh, as opposed to where you're, you said your mom would give it to the cousins, and who there's no strings, but with the microloans, there are, there are strings. Do you see that we're at the beginning, possibly, of a similar kind of thing happening around remittances and how that's bolstering international aid? Uh, potentially. I think that's a, that's a good question. And I, I'd like to believe, at least at my initial stage of research, that 
you know, especially in, in areas where there is a lack of access to money, right? Where there's an active right. conflict, for instance, right. going on, or situations where other modes of intervention are not possible or for whatever reasons are not working. Uh, I think, yes, remittances are a lifeline more than anything else, right? For people well, who are, uh, you know, fleeing conflict or who are actually working through conflicts, for instance, there are people stuck in El Salvador, they can't leave. Uh, but they have a relative here who's sending money. In fact, just yesterday I was listening to um, uh, NPR One, and there was a show on uh, this lady from the Honduras. Uh, she was, you know, talking about remittances. So, not surprisingly, this is a lifeline in many cases, and I think uh, the general understanding of this should, I think, also improve among people because the, I think they need there needs to be a greater appreciation of what this phenomenon is and why people do this, and that. It's it's a basic human uh, you know need and then as, as as much as you know we need to use banks a lot of people need to use Western Union and MoneyGram. Well, there's so so that that's kind of where I was going with this, which was uh, ironically those people um, seem to be better connected electronically with mm -hmm. their phones, right? Um, sure. You know they 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 are they just are. Just, yeah. And so being able to manage that money electronically, then I wonder if that gets around banks, you know, and the whole, I mean, because there, there's a whole other thing with money in, in watching money and trafficking and money and laundering and all of that stuff you have to worry about. And then there's the, uh, the uh, and I forget which country it is, just remind me where all of that is kept in someone's head, the who owes what to whom. Yeah, yeah, Hawala. Ha yeah. Right. What is that called? Uh, Hawala with H-A-W-A-L-A. -A -A. So it's a very informal way of giving where, you know, if you want to send money to India from, say, Santa Barbara, you literally meet a guy on a street in Santa Barbara. You just give him, usually it's a him, um, a bundle of cash. And uh, within 24 hours, it does reach your destination in, yeah. say, Chennai and Bangalore. No, no, that and okay. So, f what would you say the volume of that? You've already told us the how many billion dollars are, are given in, sure. in that one. Because so that one's the informal one. So it feels like there's probably several billions of dollars that are that are moving as sure. well. Sure. Uh, Mark, on that, yeah, I, I haven't really looked at the numbers for Hawala, and that's sort of the slippery slope of, you know, the informal transaction space. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of clamp down on that in some cases. Right, right, right. Sure. Yeah, no, I understand. That's what I'm saying. You're, 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 in, you're in this area where it's very sure. fluid, right? Uh, and it touches a lot of issues like... It clearly touches immigration, right? Sure. And and this money that's going to these people and it's instantly going out of the country. So there's there's a, a faction that doesn't like that happening at all. Absolutely. Uh, right. Again, I'm not implying that all of it is clean, right? I'm not suggesting that at all. Right. There are parts to it that are ugly and you know illegal and dangerous even at some points, for sure, right? But I think that's the world we live in. I think that's also what I'm trying to impress upon, uh, that we the world we live in is is ugly dangerous and at times illegal and i think we have to find ways to make sure that people don't have to go through those means to do what they have to do which is very in most cases legal clean and they're basically supporting their family so they don't have to resort to these desperate means to achieve something which is uh, rather basic 
So there's a public uh, policy aspect to this, and and that's things take so much longer than we would hope they take. Unless and there's probably I'm feeling there there's an entrepreneurial opportunity here as well, right? Would you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. I would say so, and I think. Uh, there are actually a lot of companies that are coming up which are addressing, you know, just in my own experience, there have been at least three or four companies that have emerged in the recent past that are into the space now because they see that, uh, for instance, uh, Western Union, I'm, I'm not picking on them, or MoneyGram, they charge a certain amount of money, right? If you send $100, they charge you, say, $15, right? As a that fee. much? Yeah, yeah, it's quite a bit. It could be between 10 to 12%. Yeah, it could be quite a bit. So there are companies which are coming up, startups or, you know, uh, sort of well, basically well-funded companies just saying, we'll, we'll charge you like seven bucks, give us half of it, right? <laughs> but we'll do the same job that these right. guys, big, big players are doing. So yes, absolutely, there's a, there's a huge, huge opportunity. So how long do you think it's going to take to write the book? I mean, we've, we've, uh, me, I'm co-authoring with a colleague who's at UNC, so between us, and she just had a baby. So <laughs> I'm trying to pace myself with her. Uh, conservatively, we have given ourselves 18 months, but both of us work pretty fast. So I think about a year from now, we should be done. I love that. And I, I, I want to hear how that does for you. As we, as we roll into the end here, would you do me a favor? Would you send us some links to those companies that we're talking about? I'd like to put them in there because the, with the show notes, it becomes part of the discussion. So if someone's Googling uh, on this topic, and it's of interest to them. I would like them to find that. Sure. Um, our, uh, our our listener, now you're just coming up on your one year anniversary of teaching, yeah? Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. So congratulations on that. Thank um, you. That's uh, that's got to be great. And do you have a family who's come with you now? Yeah, my wife is here. So I moved uh, with, with my wife and my in-laws live close by. So they've become our best friends. And she worked <laughs> at a think tank, you said. That's right. She worked at a think tank. But now she's at uh, Save the Children, which is a large nonprofit organization. Oh, great. I love yep. that. So you're, you're, you're staying in that world. Uh, yep. Sabith, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. One of the things that we do at the end of the show is we give you the opportunity to name this show. And uh, to so you probably I am looking at your proposal and you have all these working titles for uh, for your book. Uh, Should we um, I like this one, self-help in international development. That's a a pretty good title. Uh, What would you like to call this show? Uh, I actually have a good one and I'd be plagiarizing this. So I think in full disclosure, (laughs) we could call it Habits of the Heart. Mm. Habits of the Heart. It's an expression used by Alexei Tocqueville, uh, who wrote about American civil society, and also the title of a book, which is uh, which is a classic. And if you guys haven't read it, I'd highly recommend. Well, why don't I, we use the title of one of your books? Uh, we could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but this is this is a uh, this is a good one, and I think uh, it conveys everything that you know I've written about. Perfect. But yeah, Perfect. I mean, it's, it's really. Uh, I'm open to ideas. And then um, someone can find you. Uh, do you have a website outside of the school? Yes, I do. So it's sabithkhan.com, S-A-B-I-T-H-K-H-A-N.com. Perfect. So we'll put that in the show notes as well so people can uh, learn more about you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. I also want to thank 
um, our, our good friends at California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and & Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Pull String Press. So if you're interested in partnering with our podcast, Patrick, how would someone do that? Well, the best way is to uh, rate, write, review, uh, let the rest of the world know how much you uh, utilize and uh, appreciate this service uh, that we're putting out into the world because we feel we have an important thing to say. Uh, if you'd like a podcast of your own, contact us here at podcast at 805connect.com. Uh, let us know. Uh, maybe you're interested in getting behind the mic. We can find a way for you to do that. We love that. Uh, we're, we're doing some really interesting shows. Uh, I would love to hear from you if you have ideas. Uh, Gerhardt, thank you uh, as always for introducing us to extremely interesting people. But if you've got an idea for a guest, uh, someone that has done something unique and interesting, drop me a line at mark at 805connect.com. And thank you so much. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.